Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. We're now approaching our 29th anniversary. Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning. Do you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. I'm broadcasting this afternoon from Santa Fe, where it's about 33 degrees. We had a heavy snowfall last night. I just text, I just checked, and tomorrow morning it's going to be 17 degrees. I look forward to coming back to Central Texas. My good <laughs> friend Kenny Rommeyer is here, and he's laughing at me. My good friend Kenny Rommeyer is there in the studio. Kenny and I have as tag, tag teams when I've been out of town and, frankly, out of the country over the years. Kenny, to you, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Carl, and same to you. Always grateful to, to be with you, grateful for your friendship. And this is a Thanksgiving show, not a Christmas show. Let's keep the snow out of it for a while, yeah, huh? Yeah, exactly right. So, once again, 512-836-0590. You may go there right now and listen to us online or go there at your convenience and download podcasts of previous Money Talk shows, or go to the free app SoundCloud, and you can listen to Money Talk previous shows there as well. It's a great idea to call or text at the beginning of the hour. That will give us the most time to do my best and our best to answer your questions, 512-836-0590. I want to, let's just get started with Kimmy and I, as we always do, uh, visit before the broadcast so that uh, this becomes better for our listeners because now they don't hear me bloviating. We actually have things to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kenny, you go right ahead, please. Okay, Carl. Well, I've been reading in the financial press, it's that time of year when there's a lot of discussion about tax loss harvesting. Can you tell us some more about that, please? I can. Uh, This is when you own a security in your own name or joint account, but not in an IRA or 401k or SEP IRA. And you have a loss in the security and you sell that and create a capital loss. Then that allows you to offset other realized capital gains throughout the year. And if after that you still have a loss, you can carry that forward for previous years to use against future realized capital gains. And you can, if you don't have any, uh, you can take $3,000 of that capital loss from your taxable income. The reason that this has been in the, in the financial press, in my view, more this year than typical, is because of what happened in 2022, particularly to bond investors, and perhaps even more specifically to bond fund investors. Last year was a terrible year for the bond market. The Barclays, I beg your pardon, the Bloomberg Ag was down between 13 and 14 percent. Also, when you own bond funds, you get monthly dividends. Most people, uh, I believe, do the right thing and reinvest those dividends. So over time, you're adding shares and you're adjusting upward your cost basis. So that becomes a higher what is called adjusted basis. So you have a down year in the bond market. And it's entirely plausible, I would say even likely for some people, 
that if you look at your bond fund, even if it's worth more than you paid for it, you will have a taxable loss. You can sell that bond fund and do one of two things. Stay out of the bond fund, that part of the market, or you can buy something very similar and establish that loss. Naturally, if last year you bought your index fund, the S&P 500, the total stock market, or the NASDAQ, at a particularly inopportune time, you could have a loss there. And I got a text last, I think it was a text or an email from our listener, Ken, who said that the IRS has never really been clear about the wash sale rule when it comes to index funds, ETFs, and mutual funds. In other words, if I have a loss in an individual stock, let's just say it's ExxonMobil, if I sell that and take that loss, I'm not allowed for the next 31 days to own to buy back that Exxon, uh, and I have to stay out of that security. So in the case of a mutual fund, you have a bond fund that has a loss. You can sell that, and then you can purchase another similar bond fund in the same, say, Morningstar category. Uh, and then when that 31-day period is over, you can go back into the fund that you liked in the first place, and you've established the loss. That's called tax loss harvesting. You're running out of time. Uh, this obviously has to be done by the end of the calendar year. So whether you are a do-it-yourself investor or you have an investment advisor, financial advisor, it's worth taking a look at. Now, if it's, you know, a few hundred dollars, it may not be worth it. But on the other hand, it could be a few thousand dollars, depending on the size of your holding. Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely worth taking a look at. So that's tax loss harvesting. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny? Well, Carl, it's another one of those uh, this time of year uh, topics, if you will. Some mutual funds will be paying capital gains distributions. How about uh, giving us some, some more insight on that, please? Yeah. Yeah, I, this is something that when people purchase uh, mutual funds, I guess they could be exchange-traded funds, but certainly mutual funds, they may not think about what could occur. And mutual fund managers are required uh, to set at the end of their fiscal year, which typically is probably September or October, to add up all the stocks or all the bonds that they've sold for a profit, subtract all of those that they've sold for a loss. And if they have a net gain, they have to distribute that to the shareholder. If it's a short-term gain, then they distribute that. If it's a long-term gain, they distribute that. And you will know that you will get this on your 1099. Now, remember, once again, this is not about what happens in your IRA your Roth IRA or your employer-sponsored plan. And some years, this is a bigger deal than others. Uh, And this year, it could be a bigger deal. And the reason is that um, as things went badly last year in the financial markets, uh, something very predictable occurred. And it's predictable because it virtually always happens. As prices declined, the investors thought, the heck with this, and they sold. Well, the mutual funds got to come up with the money to pay the selling shareholders. 
And so they have to sell securities. Now, what they may have securities with big gains. Let's suppose they own some high-tech stocks like NVIDIA or they own Tesla or something like that that has, that has gained a lot inside the mutual fund portfolio. They've got to sell those stocks to come up with the money to pay the shareholder who wants her money. So what happens is that a shareholder who didn't sell her shares could have a sizable capital gain because of the activity of other shareholders. In a normal year, according to Morningstar, and this was in today's Barron's Magazine, the average fund actively managed mutual fund has a 5 to 10% distribution. Now, what does that mean? It means that 5 to 10% of the share price are what's called the net asset value. My experience actually is that you can find good funds that typically are between the 1% and the 5% range of capital gains distributions. And in a difficult year, they can move towards that 10%. But there were a list of funds in today's barons at 20% and greater. And that can be really painful. So that's what can happen. And generally, when prices are rising, people are happy with their performance. They're not selling their funds. And the fund managers, they're only taking gains because they want to as part of their portfolio strategy. And what I've learned, and this won't surprise you, Kenny, is your funds going up if you have some capital gains taxes to pay, you're okay with it. But when your fund's going down and you have to pay capital gains, that's not so good. I remember back, we had those glorious five years, 1995 through 1999, when the standard and poor 500 rose over 20% a year. And high-tech stocks particularly, and so-called growth stocks, really led the market. Then we had the the market collapse, the so-called dot-com bubble bursting, and you saw people selling funds and the fund managers having to sell stocks in which they had large gains. And people who didn't sell their funds said, wait a minute, my fund was off 25% last year, and I have taxes to pay. That's the ugly truth. It also works the other way. After a, a long downturn in equities, for example, the fund managers may have realized capital losses. Unfortunately, the tax law does not allow them to distribute them to us as shareholders, they keep those on the books. And so in subsequent years, as they sell stocks for gains, they can use those losses they incurred previously to offset those gains. And consequently, you could actually have quite a high level of so-called tax efficiency as those funds rose in price but did not have to distribute capital gains. So you just need to be aware of this. Now, according to Barron's, if you're interested in what this you your fund is, of course, you can go to your fund's website, but they also mention a website in Barron's today called capgainsvalet.com. Cap is in C-A-P, capitalized C, gains, G-A-I-N-S, valet, V-A-L-E-T.com. I went there, and uh, they have a free service that shows, that links you to the big mutual fund companies like Vanguard and Fidelity and uh American funds and T. Rowe Price and others. And then they have a subscription service if you really have a lot of funds or you're really a serious mutual fund do-it-yourself investor. So that's a really good information to know. By the way, it's time for us to take a break. We have all of our lines available. We have no new text to answer. So call or text 512-836-0590. 
Kenny and I will be back very soon. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back. I told you Kenny and I wouldn't be gone very long. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny. Carl, just uh, one quick follow-up question on the capital gains discussion. Is it fair to say is December one of maybe if not the biggest month for payouts usually over the course of the year? That's been my experience, Kenny. Some funds will pay out uh, during the year, but that's typically not the case. Now, it's it's common for funds uh, which own stocks to pay dividends during the year from mm-hmm. the underlying stocks in the portfolio, mm-hmm. uh, but not capital gains. And then, as I mentioned uh, earlier, it's, uh, I think, almost standard that bond funds pay out uh, dividends on a monthly basis and people reinvest those. And you can even own an index. Say you own the S&P 500 uh, index. The, the companies in that index pay uh, dividends, not all of them, but many of them do. And so the S&P might have a dividend yield of 1.7%, 1.8%. Well, those dividends, you reinvest, but you still have a tax liability on those. But it's my experience that There'll be a period, and we're we either in it now or will be soon, where these funds will announce their uh, capital gains distribution. And I'm really glad you brought this up because there is a uh, there's a portfolio strategy component to this, and that is if you're considering buying a fund or adding to a fund position, and it's this time of the year, it's wise and prudent to check and see if it's going to have a significant capital gain distribution. Because if it is, you may want to defer your purchase for a few days or a few weeks. Now, if it's a 1% or 2% or 3% distribution, I'm not sure deferring purchase necessarily makes sense because not always, but frequently, uh, the stock market will have what's called a Santa Claus rally. And what you saved by not uh, buying it may be lost in appreciation. So you have to think about the what the economists call opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. To finish my an- but to finish my answer, this is the season, by and large, for capital gains distributions for mutual funds, Kenny. Okay, and so we have a, a caller and a text, Carl. So I know you'll want to go to that call first. Yes, I'm and- just looking here. Go ahead, please. No, sorry. This is uh, Freddie in Round Rock. Freddie, you're on the air. How may I help? Well, I would like to know, is there any reference that you can appoint me to to get some more information on the tax loss harvesting? That's a great question. I get stuff all the time because I'm, you know, I do this professionally. Um, I think I see articles in the Wall Street Journal um, and a lot of the various asset managers have websites. I would probably go to the websites of the big bond managers. Fidelity would be one. Uh, Vanguard would be one. Uh, PIMCO, P-I-M-C-O would be one. They are likely to have art, have articles on that because all of them have been emailing me talking about it, Freddie. So I think that's where I would start if I were you. Well, thank you very, very much. I can get on that tomorrow. 
Okay. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny, I think we have a couple of texts. This one says, hi, Carl. I have some index funds in my IRAs that I would like to sell and buy their respective exchange-traded funds that have lower fees. Do you see any issues? I'm not trying to do any tax harvesting or so no wash rail, wash rules. This is Mark and Round Rock. Mark, I think that's a terrific idea. What Mark is talking about is let's just use Vanguard. And again, everyone knows this, and I'm not recommending, but Vanguard's known for their low costs, and they have index funds. So let's say they have a Vanguard total stock market fund. You can purchase their open-end mutual fund, or you can purchase the exchange-traded fund. So what Mark is saying is, I'm making this up, obviously. I own Vanguard Total Stock Market in my IRA, uh, and I'd like to switch it to the Vanguard Total Stock Market exchange-traded fund. Is there? Do I have any issues with that? And the answer is absolutely not. The only thing I could think of is there's seldom, if ever, any kind of transaction charge on the open-end mutual fund. Depending on who your custodian is, there may be a transaction charge on uh, on selling that, and there may be a transaction charge on buying the ETF. What what I see as industry practice is that there's no transaction fee on the ETF. Some custodians uh, are not compensated, and I'm just using Vanguard, uh, are not compensated by Vanguard, and so they may charge a fee to get in or to get out of the open-end fund. But other than that, and if you're just doing this one time, that's insignificant. So in my view, if I were in your shoes, I'd plan on going ahead and doing that. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. We have another text here. Let's just see. Carl. I have an I-bond that will be two years old in January. Can I get accrued interest? You know, I have I don't get involved in I-bonds because they, uh, you purchase them typically directly from the Treasury. Uh, and the answer is, I don't know. We have a lot of listeners who are experts in this area. And if any of you are listening on this Thanksgiving holiday, and you know the answer, let me read it one more time. I have an I have an I bond that will be two years old in January. Can I get accrued interest? I I just don't know, and so let's hope we get an answer today. But if we don't, we should have one by next Saturday. Yeah, Carl, I do know you pay, and this is certainly I want to defer to the experts here, yourself included. That you do pay a penalty if you uh, cash out the I bond early. I remember that part yeah. of it. Yeah, I do too, but I don't know what early means. If you know what, if you know what I'm saying, yes, I do. Right, it's a certain length of time, but I don't, I can't remember what that is either. Again, um, there's nothing wrong with I bonds. It's just that when you buy them, you're not, you know, you're not. It's not like buying a regular bond where you lock in. You know what the income is going to be because it's established when you buy it. Both the benefit and the liability of the I bond is that depending on inflation. The, the amount of interest paid uh, fluctuates. Our longtime listener, uh, Bob in Arlington, used to regale us with when was a good time to buy I-bonds and when was a bad time. 
when you buy them when the stated interest is high and you get that for a certain length of time. And then sometimes back when inflation was really low, I remember that they were very, very uh, unattractive. So maybe you and I will learn more. Carl, here's, if I could, please, sorry. There's there's one other text that came in right on top of that I-bonds text. So I'm not sure if you saw this one. Uh, Briefly, it says, I'm seeing some emerging market funds without China. Your thoughts in a portfolio. So uh, we've got about three, two minutes. I'm going to I'm going to cover that because I do not see that. Um, the case for emerging markets has been a positive one for as long as I can remember. I've been around this for 45 years. The idea is they have growing population, they have young median age. In many cases, they have a growing middle class, and so there's demand that should be good for their economies. I don't argue with that. The problem is that they tend to be much more volatile as securities. And when people get nervous and we go into a bear market, typically emerging market stock funds do much worse than domestic or emerging uh, market or or regular uh, international funds. So they just have been too uh, volatile for my taste. Having said that, I think excluding China because of the geopolitical concerns is really a good idea. So if you've done your homework and you want to put emerging market funds in your portfolio, being able to do that without China seems to me to be a good thing. The other thing is I would want to look at the weighting of each country in there. I mean, there was a period of time when I remember South Korea and Israel were called emerging markets. Well, I don't know if you ever spent any time in South Korea or Israel, but there are no more emerging markets. Seoul and Tel Aviv, or as modern a city with skyscrapers as you've ever seen. So you want to look at the holdings. Yes, you know China's not in there. That's a good thing, in my view. But look at the other holdings and their weighting. Because if you have an overweighting in one country, it can really drive the returns. Thanks for that, Kenny. We're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to take a break. It's a perfect time for you to call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny and I shall return. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call Kenny and me at 512-836-0590. You may text us as well. And we will take your text in the order in which we give them. It's always a great idea to text or call the beginning of this segment, but we have ample time to do our best. Kenny, I see, uh, interestingly, because this was a topic that you and I would talk, had talked about before the broadcast, there's a text that came in at about 24 minutes after the hour that said, Carl, last week you had several calls about charitable, charitable giving. Were you going to talk more on that? And the answer is yes, I am. So first of all, I said that there were places that one of the questions was, or comments, frankly, also, was we, we have more money than we're ever going to spend, and we'd like to be giving it away. We'd like to do it in a thoughtful and intelligent manner, and we've had trouble doing that. And if, as you may know, if you're a regular listener, you can go, and I write a monthly letter, and a component of that financial and investment planning is in at our website at KLBJ. And there's a piece 
I believe, Kenny, it's called Lindsay's Reflections, isn't it? Yes, sir. Correct. And that's my colleague, Lindsay, writes that. She writes about philanthropy in this letter, and she gives two websites. So if you have the fancy term is philanthropic intent, but you're not certain what you'd like to do, she writes in there, there are two uh, websites you should consider, and you can go do your homework. One's called Guide Star, G-U-I-D Star, and the other is Charity Navigator. I'll say that one more time. Guide Star and Charity Navigator. Now, there's something I haven't talked about that has a lot of power. So let's suppose that you want to be giving money uh, on a regular basis, uh, you can certainly, if you select one or two or a half dozen or however many 501c3 nonprofits, and you want to give the money directly to them, that's great. But there's another way to do this, too. Let's suppose that you have a considerable amount of money, and maybe it's in appreciated securities, for example. You have a mutual fund that you bought 10 years ago, and it's worth a lot more than you paid for it. You can go to any of the asset management firms, certainly uh, household names like Fidelity, but, but frankly, they're all over the place, including your local community foundation. And you can put money in what is called a donor-advised fund, and you get a tax deduction. They then invest the money on your behalf. They have a variety of investments. And none, none of them are wild and crazy based on my experience, stock and bond funds. And then you can select at your leisure the places, the institutions to which you would like to give. And this is its simple. If you set up a family foundation, it's not simple. It's expensive. You have a mandated 5% of the corpus you have to give away every year, and you have to file a form with the IRS. You don't have any of those restrictions in a donor-advised fund. And let's suppose that this is part of your estate plan and you have three children. So upon your death, the kids don't have to decide together where to give the money away. They can split that donor-advised fund into three parts, and therefore they don't have that kind of potential for conflict within the family. So I would consider those two websites, GuideStar and Charity Navigator. And also I would look at do some work on donor-advised funds. I think you'll find that information very useful. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I believe we have another text here. Let me just go here on the software that we have. Carl, I turned 73 this month. May I start an IRA or a Roth? What would be the advantages and disadvantages? The answer is yes, you can start them if you have earned income. That does not mean income from Social Security, income from a pension, income from dividends, income from interest. You have to have income from earnings, whether you work part-time and get a 1099 or you work part or full-time and get a W-2. If you, in fact, have that income, and yes, you can. I'm doing this from memory. I left my file back in Austin. It's the For most people, it's $6,500 this year. But because you're over age 50, you have another 1000 on top of that. So you could put $7,500 if, if you had that earned income. 
into an IRA or a Roth. I would tell you I would do the Roth if I were you because there's no required minimum distribution. Secondly, if you leave it in for five years from your initial investment, when you take the money out, there's absolutely no income tax. And third, upon your demise, your heirs, your what are called your beneficiaries, get the Roth, and they have 10 years to take the money out, and they pay no taxes on it. If you do the IRA, about the only benefit at, the, at your age would be, number one, if you thought you were going to get a tax deduction for putting the money in, or number two, you wanted to take the money back out before that five years was up. If you put the money in and it's not tax deductible, all you're doing is growing the money on a tax deferred basis because when you take that money out or when your heirs take it out and they have 10 years, anything over and above your original investment would be taxable. So I like the Roth as a matter of, as a matter of savings. And if you have earned income, then I think that that's a pretty darn good idea. Thanks for the text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny? Uh, Carl, a few more texts have come in. Are you seeing the one uh, from the Mary and Dripping Springs about her Vanguard fund? If not, I can I read it. I, I, uh, here it is. Thank you, Kenny. Hello, my Vanguard fund IRA has roughly $400,000 in a total stock market index fund and about $155,000 in a total international stock index fund and $200,000 in a total bond. The bond fund has been the biggest loser in the past two years. It sure has. And the international fund has been flat. You're right. Do you have any suggestion? I am a 69 year old female with no current need to make any withdrawals before mandatory withdrawals at age 72. Well, first of all, Mary, congratulations on saving and investing. Frankly, I like your asset allocation. So it's worth 400, 200, or $600, $755,000. And you're more heavily in stocks than bonds, but you're only 69 years old. You have a long life expectancy and you obviously don't need the money now. The problem is moving out of the total bond uh, or the total international is I worry that we would be chasing you and I, if I did it, we'd be chasing performance. There's no question that bonds have had a bad two years. I mean, I look today, the Bloomberg bag, looking at the exchange traded fund symbol AGG has a total return to plus 0.72. But there's a lot of information that I've seen that says, when the Federal Reserve stops raising interest rates. Now, obviously, I don't know. Kenny doesn't know when that will happen. I think it's reasonable to think that we're nearer to the end of the Fed raising rates than we are to the middle or the beginning. If that's true, when we look back, we'll know the end because they will have dropped rates. The one-year returns and the three-year returns on core bond funds, meaning not high-yield bonds, not junk bonds or uh, like that, or international bonds, core bond funds, the returns on those are frankly fantastic. So you since you, you don't have a big weighting in bonds, I don't have a problem with your current bond allocation. Now let's talk about your total international stock fund. Absolutely been a big disappointment. However, having said that, 
listening to a lot of portfolio managers that my colleague Lindsay and I do and doing a lot of reading, there are a lot of smart people who talk about how much more attractive, meaning less expensive, international stocks are when compared to domestic stocks. And there's something that I'm, I may talk about later. Kenny and I talked about this before the broadcast called reversion to the mean, which in simple terms means over longer periods of time, things return to their regular price, their average price, whatever words you want to use. And U.S. stocks have outperformed foreign stocks for so long, it's perfectly reasonable to think that they'll come back, they'll come back in relationship to international stocks, which will do better. There's a wonderful chart at J.P. Morgan Guide to the Markets.com that shows periods when domestic fund, domestic stocks have outperformed and periods of when international stocks have outperformed. And we're in a very long period of domestic stocks outperforming. I'm unwilling to make a bet that that's going to continue over the next three to five years and that this underperformance by international is going to happen. After all, more than 50% of the world's public companies are headquartered outside the United States. And I think right now I would keep the international if I were you. And because I think we're closer to the end of Fed raising rates, I think 12, 18 months from now, the odds are you and I are going to be pretty darn happy that we own a core bond fund. So good luck. Uh, congratulations on your savings. We're coming down to the last quarter hour. It's a great time to call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny and I will be right back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on NewsRadioKLBJ.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart. Kenny Ronmeyer is there in the studio. I'm broadcasting this afternoon in a bit of a snowstorm from Santa Fe, New Mexico. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Kenny, we got an answer to our earlier I-bond question. We have a text that says regarding I-bonds, yes, you can cash them out in two years, but you lose three months of interest. That is, you get one year and nine months of accrued interest. So that's the answer to that earlier one on I-bonds. 512-836-0590. Here is another text, I believe, from Tim. Carl, there's been a huge push in recent years for people to convert IRAs and 401ks into Roths. When I hear this from financial people, I've never heard anyone mention that if you convert to the Roth, the money you pay in taxes is no longer there for future investment gains. If you factor in or calculate one's losses, is it still worth converting to a Roth? My experience is, I mean, first of all, you're right. There's a lot of talk about that. I think that if you just look at the dollars, you could say there's no benefit, but eventually you or somebody are going to pay the taxes on the money in the IRA. So I find other factors rather than the pure math of cause people to consider a conversion. Uh, one is the flexibility of not having to take a required minimum distribution. I've had over the years, many conversations with clients who have said, look, I have enough money to live on. I do not want the money out of my retirement plan. I'd like to leave that to my spouse 
I'd like to leave that to my children or my grandchildren, and the government's making me take it out and pay taxes on it. The idea that the money can grow without any current taxation and then can come out if your spouse inherits it throughout her or his lifetime, and then she or he can have a child or a grandchild or anybody else, I suppose, as a beneficiary, they have 10 years to take the money out without having to pay any taxes. So I think there are what I would call, I guess, financial planning you know, things to think about, Tim, not just the money. If you run just the numbers, then I think you're absolutely right. I find when people are motivated to do a conversion, it's about those other life and financial planning situations. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. You've got another 12 minutes, 512-836-0590. Kenny? Uh, Carl, we actually have uh, Marianne holding. Okay, great. Hi, Marianne. You're on the air. How may I help? Hi. Such an interesting program today. Thank um, you. A lot, lot of good information being uh, asked and yes. received. I, yeah. I was going to talk to you a little bit about some of the market that's going on, but after hearing those other um, inquiries, yeah. I was um, thinking about trust and uh, need to probably set up a trust or more than that uh, for some property, et cetera. I have, fortunately, I have um, some attorneys in my uh, in in my family, and so Good. I'm. But I, they are not of that sort mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. That's mm-hmm. not their their field. Right. So I'm wanting to do some good homework myself. And do you have any thoughts having worked with people who have cu- accumulated uh, various assets? Yes. Uh, anything yes. about um, trust yes. to start studying, yes. I guess, is my yes. question. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably what you're thinking of, uh, are you thinking of establishing these trusts that would then go into effect after your demise, or do you thinking about it during your lifetime? Oh, I think more after my demise, and um, there be there will be a good deal of charitable um, activity from them. Not that I'm, we're yeah. talking about many, many millions of dollars, but my, right. my family uh, they they really don't need anything. I like to keep them inspired to work hard. Good. So I think go about their business. The kind, right. So the kind of trust you set up that goes into effect upon your death is called a testamentary trust. And it says, upon my demise, I want these assets to go into the trust. I want these people, if that if they are people who are going to be, as, not as, as opposed to institutions, to be the beneficiaries of the trust. And I want this person or this institution to be the trustee. And it's set up that way. You pass away. It's in your will. The assets leave your uh, account, so to speak. Your ownership's a better term. And they go into the trust. Uh, One of the things that a lot of people overlook is that the income tax rates on trusts are much more onerous than they are on on individuals. Uh, I'm doing this from memory but I believe after something like $14,000 of taxable income coming out of the trust properties, it starts to get into a very high tax bracket. So the trust is going to, if the trust throws off income and it does not distribute that to the beneficiaries, 
it's my understanding the trust then has to pay tax at a high rate. So you're, most people would say, I'm going to set up this trust, and upon my death, these assets are going to go into the trust, and the income from these assets are going to be distributed to the beneficiaries of the trust, who will then pay taxes on them at their individual tax rate. That would be probably the most important thing to consider. If you have something that requires management, then you're also not only going to have to have a trustee, but you're going to have to think about the time and the effort the trustee puts in. If it's a trusted person, say a nephew or a niece or a grandchild or something like someone like that, it's totally appropriate. And I frankly think the right thing to do to establish in this trust that they receive a fee. They shouldn't have to do this for free. And you can study what those fees are. I, I would think you would want to have something that would they would compensate them so that they would feel they were fairly compensated for the work of managing the trust. And man, if it turns out that you don't have a human being that you believe would first be capable of doing that and secondly would be willing to do that, then you can always have a corporate trustee. And that's what trust companies are for. You can leave money in a trust and have them manage the portfolio and distribute per your instructions, or uh, you can uh, transfer property in and you want to find a trustee. If it's real property, like real estate or oil and gas properties, a trustee that would be have the capability to manage that and do all of the details of that. So those are revocable trusts. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They're a great thing. They're particularly if you've got heirs who who, who either a or are you know children, uh, or you or frankly have poor judgment or have some other kind of disability, putting it in the trust for their benefit makes a whole lot of sense. Again, I, you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But but testamentary trust. I start with frankly googling the phrase testamentary trust or what are testamentary trusts, and then you'll get, as you know, a bunch of stuff will pop up. It won't cost you anything to start doing homework on those and, and, and learn from that. Well, thank you, Carl. You know, I think you do preferably by far to do that homework. And, yeah. and yeah. when you're setting it up with uh, an attorney, however you're going about it, you have your questions uh, yes. that uh, aren't clear. So thank you for yes. all of that. Okay. You bet. Thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Here's a, a text back from the person who had the IBON question, and it, it's she or oh, it's Rick. He says, related to my earlier IBON question, I don't want to redeem the IBON. I want to withdraw the earned interest. Hopefully, someone can explain if or how that can be done. Yeah, I don't know. I know TIPS, uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, I don't know that they pay out current cash like a normal bond. So, Rick, we may find out in the next five, four minutes, and, <laughs> and we may not, whether you can get accrued interest on that I-bond and still own the I-bond. Kenny, what's next? Now, Carl, I've, as we're about out of time, but I know you talked about philanthropic uh, aspirations and such. How does that play into a, a family meeting? you want to touch on that briefly? I, I do. Uh, and, and this hits close to home. Um, I'm here with our uh, family of adult children, and uh, we had a family meeting today. And um, I will tell you that uh, I should have been doing this 
10 years ago. So I'll just be admit my own uh, stupidity. Uh, and it really is about what uh, my wife and our plans are through the remaining part of our lives and what is in our estate plan. And you don't have to be a wealthy person to do this. I think one of the benefits of doing this is to reduce confusion and reduce conflict um, upon your demise. Uh, sadly, uh, uh, Lindsay and I see uh, people who have saved and invested for a lifetime and passed away and not be clear in written form how they wanted their assets distributed or to what institutions, to their college or university or church or synagogue. And as a result, there's a lot of misunderstanding and can really, really tear a, comp- a, a family apart. Also, there are cherished stuff that may or may not have significant financial value. It may be, uh, we had this conversation today and one of our children laughed and said that she wanted the kitchen table. It was the kitchen table she grew up sitting at and having family dinners. Uh, I can assure you that the market value of that kitchen table approaches zero, but it means a lot to her. Well, that should be in our will that she gets the kitchen table. That's called a bequest. So there's no question. I actually encountered, we encountered a sad situation where a, a, a wife passed away, a husband passed away, and they had told a son who had been living with them that he could have the house for the rest of his life. When his parents passed away, Kenny, his brother said, let's sell it. I want, I want half of the sales proceeds. And the person living in the home who was in his 50s said, well, mom and dad said I could have the house. And the other brother said, where's the document that states that? And mom and dad did not have it in their last will and testament. And guess what? That house is going to be sold. That brother's going to be out of the house with half the proceeds. And he's going to have to go find a place to rent. This is very, very important stuff. And it's good to start at the beginning with just some real fundamental things. You don't have to talk about the money in terms of giving the amount, but what you're doing is you're giving a gift to your children of planning for the future. There are a number of things, including what we talked about earlier today. If you have philanthropic intent, share with your kids or your heirs what your philanthropic intent is. Tell them about a donor-advised fund. Tell them about the institutions you support. Give them some thinking, what you might call your philanthropic strategy. But why is it that we support this particular organization? And how is it that we keep connected to that organization? What good experiences have we had and what bad experiences have we had? And this is just the beginning of the topic. I think this really, really matters. And it's it's appropriate to talk about it on Thanksgiving because in this world today, Kenny, you and I have so much to be thankful for. And I I know our listeners do as well. So as I finish the program, I want to thank Kenny. I want to thank Garrett. And I feel a great deal of gratitude for all of you who have continued to listen over these almost 29 years to Money Talk. Wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And as always, remind you that next Saturday after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 